So we built, we turned it into a product, which basically just took, you know, took this hacky thing that I pieced together and made it a little more professional, kind of worked through all the end-to-end parts. But again, that same kind of four-step workflow that I mentioned. For the first four months, it fell flat. What I mean by that is we launched in January. I had a bunch of people that had seen the prototype. They were super excited about it. We gave them the product and they never used it. It was a really interesting kind of crucible moment for us where I was just scratching my head and like thinking to myself, am I crazy? Am I the only one that actually thinks this is a good idea? I'm Andrew Hogue. I'm the founder and CEO at TeamPay. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Andrew Hoke built the platform to automate your spending while keeping your team in control. All this and more on Code Story. Andrew Hogue remembers a time before he started his own company where there were other things outside the company. But what keeps him sane is spending time outdoors, kite surfing, and traveling. He's a lifelong nerd, and building things has been his passion for as long as he can remember. Beyond that, he's also a musician and enjoys hiding behind a drum kit or a DJ booth. Andrew remembers a time during his career where if he would have purchased a piece of software, he would have been fired. As the market has shifted today, there is more need for everyone to be a part of the software procurement process, but the tooling is still stuck in the wrong era. This is the creation story of TeamPay. TeamPay is what we call a distributed spend management platform. And you know what that means now is I realized when I was starting the business did a lot of research and I realized that the way companies spend money has changed in the last 10 to 15 years. And what I mean by that is when I started my career, I've been doing this a long time and, you know, started in a very kind of traditional corporate environment, first in the government and then in the private sector. And if I went out and bought a piece of software to use at work, I would get fired. And if you think about that, it feels very anathemical to how things happen today where everybody is buying things, they're using tools, they're downloading stuff on the internet, they're signing up for subscriptions, etc. And I think that's just fundamentally changed. And so what, what, what we saw in the market was that every single employee in a company is now part of the purchasing team. And yet the finance team is still using tools from potentially 15 to 20 years ago. Centralized spend, top-down purchasing, etc. And so that really created an opportunity for us. And coming from the engineering side, where my background is, there was some simple pattern recognition that I had where I realized that I had more control over my source code and my software than I did over my money. When I dug into the market, I looked at a number of factors, right? First, I looked at, you know, what were the incumbents? And even when were those incumbents started, right? People forget that Expensify is like 17 years old and, you know, there's other companies like Coupa is 15 years old, SAP is over 40 years old. And there's just this gap in terms of modern finance tools. I think the second part was the shift in the market that I just identified, so the behavior changed. So you have no new innovation, 
you have a change in behavior. And then the third prong really was a massive, massive TAM, right? Total addressable market. And on the TAM side of it, right, there's $28 trillion that transacts in the US B2B. And there's not any single company or even a small collection of companies that really are able to control that spending. There's a lot of companies that help you receive money like Stripe and Zora, uh, PayPal, Braintree, et cetera, but not a lot of companies that actually give you control over what you're spending. So it was really this perfect storm of these three factors that led me to give the green light to TeamPay effectively and say yes. Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. How, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you and your team use to bring it to life? You know, there's a little bit of a saying of faking it till you make it, right? But building as little software as possible just to validate the experience. And what I wanted to mimic at that point was this interaction that I had with my team members, where a team member would come to me and say, hey, Andrew, I need to sign up for this thing or I need to download this tool. Great, how much does it cost? All right, it's about 40 bucks. Is that every month or every year? Oh, it's every month. Okay, what's this for? Like, what department is it in? Oh, it's for our engineering stack. And you think about this, this conversation initially was happening over Slack, also happens over email, can happen over the phone, could happen over someone walking to your desk, right? I just took that conversation and I turned it into a user interface. We started with a chatbot. And so you could go to the chatbot and say, hey, I need to buy this thing. And the chatbot would walk through a bunch of questions, which is effectively letting you fill out a form. At the end of it, it would then route that information to someone to approve. And so we take all, the chatbot would do all the questioning and gathering and make sure that you had all the fields filled out in the form and then send it to a manager for approval. And so that manager would get all the information that everybody requested, hopefully enough to make a decision and a green button that says approve. Once we approve that purchase, this was part of the innovation that we drove at that time was we had the ability then to create a virtual card configured specifically for that purchase. And part of the problem that I was trying to solve was, you know, even when I was running a business or when I was doing my own startups, I was constantly sharing my corporate credit card with people and I lost track of what they were using it for. It felt very insecure. I was hiring people in remote countries to do work for us, developers for hire, and they needed to buy things and I wasn't gonna give them my own personal or corporate card. And so we created this virtual tokenized number that you could then use to make the purchase. And by doing that creation, we actually got all the data back. So it's super interesting. So the initial flow was request, approve, pay, and reconcile, which is the accounting side of it. And I built that flow myself in Python using a bunch of libraries and downloaded tools. So I pretty much hacked together kind of this fake experience and I could have someone be the chatbot, I could have someone be the manager and built the prototype effectively myself over a period of a couple months. And for me as a product person, once I saw that experience, there was just this aha moment. And that aha moment was how delightful it was. It was like the first time I held up an Apple iPhone. I actually had one of the first 50 devices in my hands off campus. And I was just like, this is an amazing device. And walking through that experience, it just solidified everything that I said earlier around, you know, people logging into crappy systems and filling out forms and feeling like they're at the DMV. 
And our goal has always been to provide an Apple-like experience, which makes our customers and our finance teams happier. And so that really was the aha moment. So I built the prototype myself. Our initial demo was a series of keynote files that I hacked together to show what a demo looked like. I mean, every trick in the book to kind of like piece it together and give a sense of the experience. And then I would go put it in front of people and people's eyes lit up. And so that was part of the initial testing. We hadn't spent a dollar at that point, but we really went out and did classic kind of customer validation, Steve Blank style, to make sure that the product solved a problem for people and got overwhelming feedback very early on in the process. Okay, so then from that point, right, you've got the feedback, right? You've got the you got the MVP, you're getting the feedback. How did you progress the product from that point and mature it? And I think what I'm super interested in is how you built your roadmap and how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or address with TeamPay. We raised a little bit of money. Fortunately, I had um, I had sold his prior startup, had a couple investors from that that wanted to invest again. And part of it was because we were doing finance and fintech, we just had a little more overhead in terms of security and all the things that we needed to do to make this work. So we built, we turned it into a product, which basically just took, you know, took this hacky thing that I pieced together and made it a little more professional, kind of worked through all the end-to-end parts. But again, that same kind of four-step workflow that I mentioned. For the first four months, it fell flat. What I mean by that is we launched in January I had a bunch of people that had seen the prototype. They were super excited about it. We gave them the product and they never used it. It was a really interesting kind of crucible moment for us where probably by the third month, I was just scratching my head and like thinking to myself, am I crazy? Am I the only one that actually thinks this is a good idea? We regrouped and really through our network, we got introduced to kind of a new set of customers. And I'd made two classic mistakes in hindsight. The first mistake I made is I gave it away for free. And I think depending on the problem you're solving and who you're selling to, freemium and bottoms up models can work. But the thing about money and and contracts, nobody in a company wants to touch money or contracts except the finance team or the legal team, right? People want to stay away from it. So that freemium kind of bottoms up model doesn't always work. And we realized that we needed our customers to have some skin in the game. Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital calls it the penny problem. The difference between a free product and a product that you're charging even a penny for is is dramatic. And so we needed to charge for it. So that was one mistake. And then the second mistake we made, which is less a mistake and more just learning, was we were hitting a market that was too small for what we were delivering. Our vision was always to help companies manage and get control over spending and make sure that all their spend is in policy. If you're 15 or 20 people and you don't have anyone who owns the finance function in-house, you're not super worried about every dollar because you're not spending a lot of money at scale. And I had given it to companies that were just simply too small for what we were doing. So we put on our big boy pants in about April of 2017, and we went out to a company which was 100 employees, which felt massive, and we charged them for it, and the usage took off like a skyrocket. And so that was a really good lesson just in terms of, you know, some people call it a pivot. I think that word is overused. We kept the same product, and we iterated on the market. And a lot of people forget that product market fit actually allows you to iterate on both. And so some people change the products. And in this case, we actually just changed the market and kept the same product. And that's what actually got the adoption to take off. That's what got the acceleration. So I think that was probably a nonlinear path to kind of that initial traction. 
Well, okay, let's switch to team, Andrew. Uh, tell me, tell me how you went about building your team, and I'm and I'm interested in what you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. So building a team for me is really important, right? And I, I talk about this a lot with my talent team and with my with my leadership team here, which is money is fungible, right? So a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. People are not. Engineer A is not 100% equivalent to engineer B. And so really when you're building a team, you need to think about the mosaic and the Venn diagram of how you're building that team. So how do the pieces fit together? How do you make sure that you're covering the right things? And then on top of that, you need to think about the team fit. A lot of people call that culture, right? But just what are the values and what is the team fit? I had the benefit of having been through a startup before. We, you know, we had five or six people at our largest, right? So not nearly the scale that that TeamPay was at even in the beginning. But through that process, I learned how important it is to be explicit about your culture and values. This time around, we actually got together. We had, I had two engineers and a couple other folks around the table, some part-time folks helping us in the very beginning. And we got together, we said, all right, what does it actually mean to work at TeamPay? And what are the kind of people that we want to work with? And what do we think would make someone successful here? And we turned that into our values and we turned that into our interview questions. You know, I'm really proud of the fact we're still using those same values and interview questions today, five years later. Some examples of those in tech and especially in startups, curiosity is one of the top things that we look for. Now, it's very hard. Everybody thinks they're curious, right? The way that we test for curiosity is we look for things of where did you teach yourself something on your own? Not just sitting in class and taking information in from a school book or a textbook, but when did you actually self-source your learning, which identifies people that are curious innately and self-motivated to be curious. Another value for us in particular, given the type of business is just self-discipline, which actually includes doing your homework. Because we're entrusted with tens of millions of dollars on behalf of public companies, we have to be fairly careful with that money. And so the self-discipline part is very, very important to us. And so that's another value. So when looking for people, we do the obvious look around skills and do they does their puzzle piece fit into the puzzle for the next opening that we have. But then we also look at what is the general tone and tenor of the type of puzzle that we're putting together and how do we find the right people that are going to fit within our organization and we use our values and our new view process and methodology to do that um, and to make sure that we screen people that are a good fit for this organization. Someone said it once to me really well, which is a phrase that I like is, you may be a perfectly fine kidney, but that doesn't mean you're the right kidney for this body. And a lot of times that happens. We find people that are very talented, very skilled, but probably not a great fit for how we want to work here. And being opinionated and explicit about that, I think is really important to make sure that you have that contiguous value and culture and team fit as you continue to grow. Well, then let's flip to scalability. So just generally, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this and sort of changing this as you grow? I think the answer is somewhere in between those two, right? So I've seen companies fail from premature scaling, right? I think it's very dangerous before you know exactly which way the rocket is pointed to light the fuse. And so I think that's really, really important. Um, and then at the other end of it, right, you want the ability to continue to make adjustments as you go. 
And I mean, gosh, let's look at the last two and a half years in the public markets from a pandemic to a massive asset inflation bubble to now potentially a recession at the end of this year. Whatever you were scaling on last year is not relevant this year. And so I think we're constantly thinking about efficiency and focus. And I think if you're efficient and you're focused, you have the ability to scale. I think scale can be misused in some cases of just, you know, damn the torpedoes, not not really paying attention to things. And that's never really been our approach. With that said, you want you want the agility and flexibility to make adjustments. And even just if we look at the past 30 months, um, we've been put through quite the roller coaster. So, so Andrew, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think for me, it's what I was going back to earlier in your earlier question, which is just the people that we've assembled. Uh, at the end of the day, I get my energy from the people here and the energy that they create and all that energy that we're using to create a really massive company. Um, I tell the team quite frequently that when I look back on my career in various roles, I don't really remember the work. There's a couple of those moments of a big deadline or a big customer win that you remember, but you certainly don't remember the work in between, but I always remember the people. And I think the relationships with your with your peers and your fellow coworkers, um, the way that the team interacts, the way the team handles conflict and tackles problems, that's something that's really important to me. The number of people that we brought together, creating friendships, creating relationships, um, those types of things I think are really important to me. And, you know, having a bunch of people that like, like actually enjoy each other's company and enjoy working on a very hard problem together. I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the challenges of being a founder CEO is that in most cases, if you're successful by definition, you're doing things for the first time. Every founder I know that's done another company wants their next company to be bigger than their prior company, which means they want to be doing things for the first time again. And one of the things that I had to do for the first time was hire a sales leader. And that took me a very long time. I think I went through two hires at least possibly a third. Um, one of them lasted six weeks. <laughs> Another one lasted just under three months. And, you know, for me, it was a good learning exercise on calibration. I don't think I had been crystal clear with what the calibration and the expectations were. Uh, the team was very helpful at the end, but I probably frustrated because it looked like I couldn't hire along the way. Unfortunately, we ended up with a very, very talented VP of sales um, that I'm very happy to work with today. And it just was this very non-linear path that involved a lot of failures. And I think if I had to do over again, I would have focused earlier on being explicit about what I was looking for and really being crisp about whether that person fits that. Um, my initial take was I'll just take anyone that can run a sales team. And I didn't really know what that meant for our size and our stage and our motion and all those kinds of things. And it took, it took a lot of very public failures for me to get that right. And I think the sales team suffered because of it. So that was one that I would love a do over on at this point. So what does the future look like for TeamPay, the product and for your team? 
It's going to be an interesting next, you know, six to 18 months, I think, depending on where the economy ends up and all of that. I think we're in for a rough kind of Q4 here based on where the economy is going. But overall, what I'm excited about for TeamPay is that companies now more than ever care about every dollar that flows out the door. And most companies today still do not have control over the money that's leaving the business. We also have the ability to consolidate headcount. Customers that use TeamPay on average have 1.8 less staff accountants or FTEs in the finance team. So we find that that's a huge ROI for our customers. So I'm very excited about that. I think the market is going to be tumultuous and topsy-turvy and confusing. But at the end of the day, the problem that we solve for our customers is the most important it's been probably since the global financial crisis. And so I think that creates a really interesting opportunity for us on the go-to-market and on the sales side of it. And on the product side of it, it opens up surface area for us to improve the product to help companies be smarter about what they're spending. This has always been part of our vision of taking the procurement team that I had when I worked for NASA and embodying that in software. And part of what a procurement team does is make sure that you're spending efficiently and you're spending smarter. And I think there's a lot of opportunities with our mid-market and enterprise customers to help them trim some of the fat. And so that opens up new product opportunities for us that we've started to look at as well. And so I'm very excited about that. And there's a number of other things, including some of our international expansion, our accounts payable product that we've also been, been rolling out, especially in a world where companies are remote, they have more remote workforces, they have teams abroad, those kinds of things. All of that is very uh, timely and there's a nice tailwind in the market for a lot of the roadmap that we're, we're building here. Let's switch to you, Andrew. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or some people or something that you look up to and why. I flip between two kind of examples on this historically. I think it's it's such a cliche, but I actually had met uh, I was I, I knew some of the people around Elon Musk in the valley, like right after he sold PayPal. And I think what I appreciate about Elon, less so the public persona and more so A, his tenacity, and B, his ability to work from first principles. When he started The Boring Company, his key insight is that power was actually the limiting factor in drilling underneath. And there's a number of constraints that you had to balance, but he was looking at it from a first principles perspective around the constraints for drilling tunnels. And so I think that first principle set of thinking is is really powerful. And I know using Elon is that as a, as a cliche, but it's specific attributes of Elon that I think are really, really valuable, particularly for me. I mean, there was a point where he was insolvent when he was working on Tesla and SpaceX. And this is someone who had a hundred million dollar exit and was insolvent. That tenacity and that just sheer belief that you will figure it out is something that every entrepreneur aspires to. His analogy of crawling through broken glass, um, I think is very apt for a lot of the entrepreneurial journey. And then the way that he approaches problems from a physics perspective and a first principles perspective, I think those are two attributes that I really respect. And there's other leaders that have that, but Elon's the most public version of that that I've seen. Well, last question, Andrew. So, so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? How far along in the journey? Because my first bit of advice would be don't do it. 
<laughs> it goes back to the answer I just gave, right? It requires a certain amount of grit. And, you know, everybody is outside looking in, but until you're waking up in cold sweats in the middle of the night, thinking about that email that you forgot to send, you don't really feel the weight of the entire company on your shoulders, no matter how close you are to the C-suite. And so there's just this dramatic difference between being a founder and you know potentially identifying with the success of the company. But for me, it's actually the obligation to the people. It's the obligation that I feel of the decisions I make on the lives of over 100 people. When we include significant others, dependents, my decisions affect probably 300 humans today. And I take that very, very seriously. And so as a company grows and scales, entrepreneurs constantly feel that weight and bear that weight on their shoulders. And I think being realistic about your tenacity, your ability to actually work through challenges and find a way when everybody tells you there is no way, uh, I think is super important. And so I think that's something that a lot of people really need to validate um, as they go into it. As an aside, I, I used to run a founder entrepreneur group for, for people like this, just for this example of people that were just starting out and kind of early company and they were just like deer in the headlights, what do I do? And we had this founders group and we had one rule, you could not be working at a day job. And that cut out 90% of the tourists. Like if you're not willing to quit your job and commit to this, regardless of your economic situation, you're not all in. So I think that kind of bright line is really important and just understanding that the commitment that's required and then the obligation and responsibility that you take on um, to create something, not just for your investors and yourself, but also for your team members and your team members' families. That's fantastic advice and an, an aside to be all in, super important. Well, Andrew, thank you for being on the show today and thank you for telling the creation story of TeamPay. You bet. Thank you so much, Noah. Really enjoyed it. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.